0: Good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, if you're first time visitor here, um, our pastor's on a two month sabbatical, so I'm one of the elders here. My name's Tony, and um, last week we started part one of this two part message. Consider your calling. We talked about the sinful condition of the city of Corinth. Uh, we went through the first 17 verses, addressing some of the issues at hand for the church at Corinth. We didn't read it, but I mentioned the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul was effectually called by God. He was saved and rescued by the creator of the universe. Paul told us that he was called to be an apostle by the will of God. It was not that it, it wasn't his own personal desire to be an apostle to the Gentiles. The word apostles, we know, means sent one. Paul addressed a letter to those who were, were called by God. Uh, that word called uh, in the Greek means summoned or appointed. They were considered saints, which meant they were sanctified or set apart and considered to be holy, which was not a decision by a council or a church. Paul always thanked God for the grace given to the believers. He didn't thank or commend the believers for deciding to choose Christ. He mentions that the testimony about Christ was confirmed uh, among them in verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul assured the church that They were not short of spiritual gifts, and he comforted them about the fact that they would be without accusation on that day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminded them that the second coming of Christ was imminent. Paul begged the brothers and sisters in Christ, if you remember, to be in harmony with one another. He asked that there be no divisions among them. He wanted unity in the church. Some had reported that there were fights going on in the church. One of the main issues at hand was the fact that the members of the church wanted to be identified with these elders, these pastors, these teachers who were leading the congregation at Corinth. You have to remember that these people had been saved out of a very philosophical-oriented society. They had all, prior to their uh, conversion, had they been exposed to, you know, one or another kind of philosophy. He wanted all to be united together for the gospel. Paul found out that some were following, if you remember we read, some were following Apollos, Cephas, even himself. I believe people here were considering that um, being baptized by these certain people was maybe very very important to them. Maybe this even started some of the, the quarreling that we read about. Baptism could have been a controversial topic in those days. I'm not really sure if it was. The people could have been possibly mixing works with grace. Paul affirmed these things as we closed last week in verse 17 that he was not sent to baptize but to proclaim the gospel not with fancy words because those words could empty the cross empty the power of the cross he set the cross above human wisdom and he came to preach the gospel not human wisdom or philosophy Mark Lloyd-Jones said that the whole drift toward modernism that has blighted the church of God and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. So it brings us to our text this morning. Remember I said last week, we're not going to be able to do a full exposition of each verse. We've got 31 verses in only two weeks. But we're going to try to walk through these verses so we don't miss anything here on this. So please stand if you would is our tradition here on sunday mornings as we read the the word of god together as we get our text as we find out where we're going to be here for this hour here this morning i want to read the last part of first corinthians uh, chapter one verses 18 through 31 all right here we go for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved is the power of god And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26, where I got the title of the message here for last week and this week. so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for this part two. Uh, this message. We we could not get it all in one week, Lord. We had to break it up. So, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, I would not say anything in error this morning, that you would watch, Lord, that you would guide my lips, Lord. Just help me to watch what I say, Lord, and stick to the text, and stick to the sermon, Lord, this morning. Lord, I just pray, Lord, if anybody's here this morning that's not a Christian, they've never trusted in Christ as their Savior. God, I pray that this would be their day of salvation, Lord, that they would Lord, that their eyes would be opened to the gospel. Lord, the veil would be lifted. Lord, I just pray that you'd bring conviction where sin, Lord, where sin is present. And Lord, I just pray that you would save souls this morning if it be your will in this place. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing this morning. So I've already said the title of the sermon is Consider Your Calling, of course, part two. So let's review our points from last week. If you remember, the first point was Paul is explaining his calling. Second, Paul is faithful concerning his calling. And third, there were problems relating to Paul's calling. So this morning, what I want to do is I'm going to add just two more points, two more reasons that I think that why we should follow Paul and consider our calling. So... Our first point this morning is number four. It goes with this. The cross is the power of God in his calling. Look at verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Now, this word, the word of the cross is folly. This word folly, or really it means foolish, is the Greek word moros. And, of course, that's where we get our word moron, okay? Okay. That's where we get it. This word is only used five times in the New Testament, and guess what? It's used all in First Corinthians in a couple different chapters. So Paul really used this word one place, and that's only where we can find it. Only place we can find it mentioned. But this word for moron here, our English word, it means absurd, silly. The cross is stupid to those who are lost, dying, the unregenerate, but to the believer, it's the power of God. To the believer, the cross is powerful wisdom. God revealed the gospel through the cross. It was God's plan and purpose for the cross to represent the redemption of sinners. Now, a fool is gonna say, really? A cross? It was nonsense to the unbeliever. Think about it before you're in your own life. Think about your own life here, before your conversion, what you thought about the cross. What did the cross mean to you? Brian Croft is a pastor in Kentucky. He's also an author, and he writes the practical shepherding for pastors, elders in a church, kind of read his blog, practical shepherding. But he made a comment in a sermon. He preached on this passage. I listened to it. It was kind of odd, but as he was charging the audience as he's preaching, he said, maybe you should join the ranks of the foolish this morning for salvation. Stephen Lawson said, God's wisdom is to take a foolish message, right, foolish message, the cross, made known by a foolish method, preaching, to save those who believe. Now, people will say to you, you expect me to believe that? I know Peter and Anthony and all those that go to Athens, and even in your own witnessing to someone in a break room at work, they'll say to you, I know they said it to me before, you expect me to believe that? That's, it's too easy for me to believe. There has to be more to it than this that you're telling me. Notice in verses 19 through 21, I'll read those again. As we kind of want to go verse by verse to, so we don't miss any of this here. But in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, or cancel. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now in verse 19, Paul reaches back to the Old Testament here. Isaiah twenty-nine fourteen. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their men, wise men, shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. He continues in Isaiah thirty-three eighteen, Your heart will muse on the terror... Where is he who counted? He, he who counted. Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? God did not need any of the wisdom of Israel, nor does he need any of the human wisdom in the church today. Now, wise men here in Corinth, if you remember the philosophers and everything, wise men were expected to come out of Corinth. But Paul's quotation here shows that it's been God's method to expose the folly of merely human wisdom. That's his plan from, from, from the beginning. Paul is teaching here that we don't have to decorate the gospel to make it more appealing. We know that. That's the problem in many churches today. The myth is we need more of our wisdom, right? Our brainstorming ideas to reach the lost. The power of the message rests in the message, not the messenger. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to man. But its end is the way to death. You can look back in verse 20 of our text. God wants to know here, he asked the question, where are the wise? Are we humans really that wise? The scribes, who are they? There really aren't any debaters here in this room here this morning that can go up against God or the universe. Jeremiah 8 9, the wise men shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? There is none. James 3.15, if you remember in our small group study this past year. This is not the wisdom, talking about human wisdom, uh, coming down from above. But it's earthly, unspiritual, and James even uses the word demonic. This grace, this salvation, this trust in Christ, this placing faith in Christ, what Christ did on the cross... For the forgiveness of sin is silly to those who are lost. It shouldn't surprise us, you know, when, we, when the world sees the message of the cross as foolish. And really the real problem is not really with me or the pastor or the church or this building. It's not really the real problem. The real problem is sin. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Even some translations use the word beware in this Colossians two eight. Beware. It's not used that often in the Bible. We look at verse 21 as we just read. It pleased God through foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. It has nothing to do with the act of preaching, but is the content of the message. The Greek word is kerygma. The message, the content, what it's saying is this. It pleased God, if you will, by the stupidity of the gospel. The content of the cross was to save them that believed. Let's jump down to verse 22 of our text, verse 22 through 25. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, if you look at verse 22 and 23, the Jews wanted a sign. Now here's the problem with the Jews they had to have a supernatural proof for everything they saw okay this was very common in this day with the Jews it's very common their constant demand was this show me a sign now some of you aren't old enough to remember the comedian Bill Ingvall about where's your sign right okay alright All right. this is going to be a tough crowd I can tell now alright but anyway they wanted a sign What they were really saying was to do a trick for us. Do something really super magic. Okay? John MacArthur said it like this. And if Jesus had done some magical cartwheels and pulled off some real stupendous things, then he would have begun something that he could never have stopped. But he did his miracles really for his disciples because miracles only solidify the faith of people who already believe. People who don't believe will find a way to explain them, explain them away. Believe me, is what MacArthur says in quote there. The message of the cross, that Christ was the fact that being crucified seemed to be a demonstration of weakness. I mean, Jesus was crucified. He was weak, wasn't he? Specifically in Jesus' apparent inability to save himself, remember? They wanted him to save himself from come down from the cross, right? After all, he was God, they were thinking, so the Jews required a sign. Now, the Greeks... Were different they looked for wisdom the message of the cross it didn't make sense now the greeks wouldn't say do something supernatural they would say let me figure this out okay i'm gonna use my own brain and my own wisdom the greeks were so in love with their own wisdom that that's all they really cared about aren't we like that for example you know how you feel when you make that sale at work What about that creative marketing deal you made in a business deal? Which is all fine. Nothing wrong with that. We think highly of ourselves sometimes when we do this. We forget about who gave us that wisdom. That's where the Greeks were. Look at me. See what I've done. How could anyone believe in or submit to one who is apparently not smart enough, talking about Christ, to save himself from suffering execution as a criminal when he wasn't a criminal? They agreed with that much. How could anyone look to him as a teacher of wisdom? Paul preached Christ, which was a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. So what is the message of the cross that has the power to save? And I kind of ran across this as far as a, kind of like a gospel presentation, but it's a lot of facts here, and I'm just going to go through them real quickly. We know that God created man, Adam rebelled or sinned against God, therefore all rebelled and sinned, There was nothing that man could do to restore fellowship with God. God provided his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrificial atonement for all who would believe. God raised his son from the dead according to the scriptures. God regenerates some people. They cry out for forgiveness and trust in Christ alone for righteousness. Those who are born again are saved from God's wrath and will live forever in the presence of God. Those who never trust in Christ alone do not have the righteousness of Christ and will be separated from God for eternity. This message of the cross is from death to life, not from sickness to health. If you look back in verse 24, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In in spite of all of that, in spite of all those facts, they rejected it. The call of salvation effectually came to some Jews and some Gentiles. Nothing is mentioned here about the Jews and Greeks choosing God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Corinthians two seven through 10 Verse 7 says But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord, Lord of glory. Verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined or comprehended, what God has prepared for those who love him. And in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Well, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, Spurgeon was asked about this text here in verse 24 of chapter 1. To which he replied, of course, the, the part we're looking at, but to those who are called. Okay, he was asked a question about that. February of 1855, he was asked to explain this verse, the word called. What did call? What was this? Because in one passage it says, many are called, but few are chosen. We've all read that. While in another, it appears that all who are called must be chosen. Spurgeon says, now let me observe that there are two calls. Now, he he quotes in here my old friend John Bunyan. This is Spurgeon talking. John Bunyan, many of you read some of his books. But he says the hen, now listen to this. It's a little little bit of a humor here, but he's making a point here, so I don't want to miss this. The hen has two calls. This is Bunyan talking. The common cluck, which she gives daily and hourly, and the special one, which she means for her little chickens. Now, all all these uh, farmers and country people are—they like this here, okay? Really, they're they're getting the—they can see this, which she means for her little chickens there. So there is a general call, a call made to every man. Every man hears it. You know, if you you have ears, you can hear this. Many are called by it. All you are called this morning in that sense, okay? You hear this. You hear this message. The very few are chosen. The other is a special call. The children's call. You know how the bell sounds over at the workshop to call the men to work. That's a general call. A father goes to the door and calls out, John, it's dinner time. That is a special call many are called with a general call but they are not chosen the special call is for the children only and that is what is meant in this text Spurgeon says here unto us who are called both Jews and Greeks the power of God and the wisdom of God that call is always a special one Bunyan continues while I stand here and call men nobody comes while I preach to sinners universally no good is done It is like the sheet lightning you sometimes see on the summer's evening. Beautiful, grand, but who ever heard of anything of being struck by it? But the special call is that forked flash from heaven. It strikes somewhere. It is the arrow sent in between the joints of the harness. Then in the last verse, verse 25 of that part of the text, we see that if, which he's not, But if God was foolish and weak, and he's not, he's still wiser and stronger than man. So our first point, our fourth point in the message, but our first point this morning is the cross is the power of God in his calling. Last point, just two points this morning. Number five is brag about God because of his calling. I'm going to read verses 26 to 31 again. Let's don't miss this here. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30. He is a source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, it is writ- as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word consider here means to look at, to perceive, to discern, to observe. What he's really saying here, consider your election, consider your summons, you being appointed by God. You remember the example I used last week about that, you go to the mailbox and you get that jury summons, they call it a summons. You get the jury statement. Some of you hate it. Some of you, yes, I'm going to get to miss work or whatever. But you perceive that. You discern that. You try to get out of that. You know, you look at it. You consider it. Many of those called were not smart, not powerful, not born famous. God had chosen nobodies rather than some of the beautiful people at Corinth. Aren't you glad he didn't choose all smart people? Aren't you glad he didn't choose the not so smart, right? John one, Peter and I were talking about this verse earlier, and it happened to be here in the text here in the message. John 1, and verse twelve and thirteen. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. But of God, a year and a half ago and some of you know the story, and I'm going to keep it short But a year and a half ago, my sister-in-law, they were not able to have children um, biologically, so they chose to adopt, and um, they adopted two boys, and uh, they'd fostered them, I think, for a year and a half or so, then they adopted them. the parents signed the rights over uh, to them. But I never forget when I was reading, I, I read this verse, these verses that morning. They, they invited us to, it was out in Paulding County. i would never done anything like this. I haven't ever adopted. But I went to the courtroom and the judge said, if criminals out there in the courtroom, we normally do it out there, but I don't want to go out there because this case is going on. They might hear something or whatever. He said, come in my chambers and I want you and everybody to come. They invited Laura and I to back there. Never done this, sat back there. The judge comes in, and he asks a couple questions, but he finds that, you know, and I know this illustration is not exactly, you know, uh, a perfect illustration, but he finds that line, that dotted line, and I read this verse, and he gave the right to become children of my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, right? But in John, in verse, in, uh, verse 12 and 13 of 1, he gave the right to become children of God. So always go to those verses Especially an adoption case, there I always go to that, and just to me, it just blesses me when I read those. There, according to the book, Whomever He Wills. Have you ever read a book? And maybe I'm weird a little bit, but it's the book is for the book that I'm reading is Whomever He Wills, and it's by Matthew Barrett and Thomas Nettles. I think they're professors at a couple of seminaries. Uh, this is one of those books. It's it's kind of long, maybe 400 pages, but it's one of those theological books. Where you read two pages, you don't really want to finish this book. You know, most people say, yeah, I gotta finish this. Laura hates reading. She probably hadn't ever read but one or two books, but she hates reading, but she you know, she wants to get rid of it, put it on the shelf and hope I don't have to read anymore. But it's like, it's like this, it's like this book it's like I read two pages. It is so much theology and just I can understand it. It's a little, you know, sometimes I get the Greek and the different tenses and I'm lost. But it's like I'm halfway through. I think I've had it over a year. I'm halfway, and I just kind of want to leave it there. Read a page, put it down. But in this book, these guys write, the Apostle Paul is instructing the Corinthian church here on the doctrine of election in these verses. This choosing on God's part was to humble the arrogance of man so that people would realize that it is only because of God that any of us are Christians. If you don't get anything else today, you have to get that. You need to get that. No one would be saved if if it were not for the sovereign, electing grace of God. If you responded to the gospel, if you are in Christ this morning, it is solely because he chose and called you to himself and adopted, John 1, 12, 13, you as his own. Matthew and Thomas continue to write, Let's get over this notion that we had anything to do with our salvation or that we chose Christ out of our own non-existent free will. In verses 27 and 28, but God chose, eklegomea, he chose out of, a selection, a deliberate choice with a heart preference, with a definite outcome. I pick for myself, elect, select. I think you get the picture by now, right? God chose the foolish, the weak, the low, and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things are, that are. I saw this passage, um, I think it was last month, yeah, it was before I didn't get to share it with Steve in our weekly meeting. I want he always wants to share some things, what you're reading, and I for, either forgot or we got talking about something. But I saw this passage, and I, I had no meaning to put this in here, but you know, I go to bed at night I dream about this stuff, and I'm, I'm not a good typer, and I'm typing slow, and I'm reading this, I'm listening to myself, whatever. But in Second Corinthians four, three through six. I mean I've never seen I've read this passage I know several times I I missed it how it can compare to 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4 3 through 6 and if our gospel is veiled it is veiled only to those who are perishing in their case the god of this world Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this passage is talking about a miracle with radical change. The word veiled here means to cover, to conceal. Tom Schreiner said, Unbelievers are not portrayed as neutral, having ability to pursue or reject God. Rather, they are held in captivity under the devil's power, prevented by him from seeing the glory of Christ. God creates sight where there is blindness. Now, this is where I missed it. All these years, I've missed it. Paul reaches back to Genesis here. Genesis 1-3, you can look at it later. Where God creates light when darkness was over the face of the deep, right? Genesis 1-2. This is what happens, though. This is where he relates here. This is why he wrote this in 2 Corinthians. This is what happens when God transforms a sinner. Just as God calls light where there is darkness, he calls a spiritual light into being where there is spiritual darkness. I never saw it like that. John Frame explains. Similarly, the, um, with new creation, creation, of course, is out of nothing, as we saw as we see. Before creation, there was nothing. Nothing can't produce anything. Reality all comes by the creative act of God. The same is true of resurrection. Before resurrection, there's death. Death can't produce life. Only God can. So in the new birth, we are passive. So think about this. If you're born again, which means born from above, saved from an everlasting hell and separation from God, placed your trust, if you've placed your trust in faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Who are you? Who am I? Why were you chosen? Do we deserve it? Anybody here deserve it? let's face it we're really not all that smart we really aren't that strong and we really aren't that popular either now I don't think Mariette is here this morning but she inspired this illustration not very good illustration on my part she inspired this if you remember a couple I think like two or three weeks ago I announced that she was at the end of the service she was doing a SAT test preparation and uh, she wanted to meet with people if you're interested. And then uh, last week we got tables uh, brought in. She had a couple classes for that for, for school. And I kind of thought about it. That's one of those things that you dream about, I guess. I got to think about this the SAT. Now, I took the SAT college interest exam. I didn't go to college out of high school. I took the test in uh, 1981. Okay? I didn't do very well on the test. In fact, I'm not going to tell you what I made on it. Okay? That's my secret, right? But I got to thinking about the, the SAT exam. And believe me, if you did well on it, I applaud you. <laughs> Very tough. Probably one of the hardest tests you'll ever take. So this is not downplaying those of you who are the, you know, excelled and everything. But if you remember the SAT, and I'm just going to speak from my, my, my part, my point of view. But in school, I can remember... And I think back then the sixteen hundred—they've changed it. I think you can make higher, but I think it was sixteen hundred or whatever back then was the perfect score. But I remember in school, you had your nine hundreds over here, your thousands, the thirteen hundreds. Those, you know, they're they're way above us, right? And I remember walking around in school, and then it was almost like they were known by your score, you know, us juniors, rising seniors, right? And it's just. They leaned on that, you know, they leaned on that score, which is perfectly, if you made a perfect score, very good, like I said, not downplaying it at all. But just for the illustration, just for a minute here, I just thought about that, how it just seemed like, you know, we were identified by what we did on this test. We tend to lean on what we have, just, we have a little bit of, we think we have a little bit of good in us. Some of us probably think we got a lot of good, right? But we tend to think we have a little bit of good after all, we could be worse, right? Different things. Now, if you've ever heard the word Pelagianism, now, I know some people are going to say, oh, man, I didn't really come here for seminary class and all this. That's good because I'm not a seminary professor. But the word Pelagianism, I think this really needs to be spoken of for five minutes this morning. According to Max Slick, if you ever read any of his stuff in Christian Apologetics and Research Ministries, some of you might like his stuff. But he's got a lot of information. But just to define the word Pelagianism, if you ever heard of it? you ever done any church studies, church history? It comes from a man named Pelagius back in the 5th century. He was a teacher in Rome. He was British by birth. Uh, it was a heresy dealing with the nature of man. Pelagius, whose family, this is, I don't understand, his family name was Morgan Pelagius. I don't really get that. But t- he taught that people had the ability to fulfill the commands of God By exercising their freedom of human will Apart from the grace of God In other words A person's free will is totally capable Of choosing God and or To do good or bad Without the aid of divine intervention Now don't miss this, follow this Pelagianism teaches that man's nature Is basically good I'm, I'm smart Thus It denies Original sin. The doctrine that we have inherited a sinful nature from Adam. He said that Adam only hurt himself when he fell. And all his descendants were not affected by Adam's sin. Hmm. Pelagius taught that a person is born with the same purity and moral abilities as Adam. When he was first made by God. He taught that Pelagius taught that people can choose God by the exercise of their free will and rational thought. God's grace, then, is merely an aid to help individuals come to Him. God helps them who helps themselves, right? You ever heard that? It's not in Scripture. Pelagianism fails to understand man's nature and weakness. We are, by nature, sinners, Ephesians 2, 3, Psalm 51, 5. We've all sinned because sin entered the world through Adam, Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world... "...through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin." Furthermore, Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, "...as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We were affected by the fall of Adam, contrary to what Mr. Pelagius taught." So Pelagius denied original sin meaning that we didn't inherit our sin nature from Adam. Adam sinned because he wanted to. So we can choose to sin or not to sin if we so desire. Many, and many of you here, and many will say, well, that's not me. I don't really believe that. Okay. I think sometimes we tend to, and it's rampant in the church today, we tend to, of course, another word is the semi-Pelagian view. It's a weaker form of Pelagianism. Some people don't even know it. Some people never even heard this this morning the first time. But semi-Pelagianism doesn't deny original sin. They agree with the Bible, right? It doesn't deny original sin and its effects upon the human soul and will. But it taught that God and man cooperate to achieve man's salvation. Okay, that's the, where it, it tends to turn there. This cooperation is not by human effort as in keeping the law, of course. They don't believe you have to keep the law, but rather in the ability of a person to make a free will choice. The semi-Pelagian teaches that man can make the first move toward God by seeking God out of his own free will, and that man can cooperate with God's grace even to the keeping of his faith through human effort. Mr. Slick continues, this would mean that God responds to the initial effort of a person, And that God's grace is not absolutely necessary to maintain faith. The problem is that this is no longer grace. Grace is the completely unmerited and freely given favor of God upon the sinner. But if man is the one who first seeks God, then God is responding to the good effort of seeking him. This semi-Pelasian view is simply man is not that bad. Or in other words, a little good is in all of us. Ephesians 2, 1 says, you were dead. The last part of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28, it says, even things that are not, well, that's me. That's you, even things that are not. We are nothing left to ourselves. And finally, as we begin to, to close this morning, verse 29 and 31. And a, a lot of information here, but it's for a reason. It's, it's in this text here. But in, in verse 29 and 31, we read what we read just a minute ago. No boasting about our ability to choose, no bragging rights here. When I went to my first church back in the 60s, in the early 70s, they had a banner kind of across where the choir loft. You know, you have to have a, you know, all churches have good choirs, right? But they had a um, a banner here. I don't know. Some of you might have heard this before. Never forget it. I can still see it today. It said this: If God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Now, some of you might not have heard that. Some of you possibly have. I don't think they really meant any, I don't even think they, they just missed it. I don't think it was any harm. I don't think it, they really meant it. But that's not true, what that said on that church. It should have read, God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Okay? Sinners want a part in it, though. We don't do our part and then God does his. We've heard, have you ever heard that before? Just step out of your seat. You do the first part and God will do the next part. I don't see that here. No flesh involved here. This is not taught in the Bible. You really want to boast on you? There you go back to school back in 81. I remember it. You had nothing to do with your physical birth. But I can choose my attorney when I get ready and when I hear the right information when I sign up for this class. You don't choose your gender. But my eternal state is up to a decision that I need to make on my own. Really? I remember someone, Lauren, I know this person that had a child that she professed Christ at, I think, eight or nine. I mentioned Vera last week being nine and I kind of gave a little bit of my testimony being ten. I think she was about eight or nine professed Christ, she was baptized, you know, exciting day for her. Well, she turns 13, which you know, three or four years later, she says she's not saved. I'm not saved. Whatever, whatever happened, don't really know the whole story. So she professes Christ, gets baptized again. Don't know. I don't know her heart. I don't know. I'm not judging here one bit, but I heard her parents say this, and she said, hurry up, let's get this straight, let's take, take this to the pastor, or whoever they went to, let's get this nailed down, let's get this taken care of so I won't be bothered by this again. She didn't really say bothered, but that was the tone. Let's get this, it's almost like, let's fill this application out so we can get through. She didn't say that either, but it's, that's what I, 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 when she said that, it's like, really? I mean, it's like, really? You said that? Let's get this settled. Uh, you, know, we've, you know, whatever her part was, I don't know. But in verse 30 and 31 of of our text, the source here means out of him. God, I said this last week. God initiates salvation. He is the actor, not the reactor. If you're going to boast, at the end of this text here, boast in the Lord. Christ is the picture of wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. If you want to boast on God, consider your calling. Think about what he's done for you. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you're a born-again believer this morning, if you've been saved by the blood that was shed on the cross for sinners like you and like me if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation we need to consider our calling Ephesians 2 8 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast this calling is different than what we talked about last week when I picked on Daphne and mentioned Mark it's a different calling this is an effectual call, not a general call. Second Thessalonians two, thirteen and fourteen, because God chose you as the first fruits, or from the beginning, to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans eight twenty-eight and thirty. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 of Romans 8, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is what we call the golden chain of salvation. This word here, called out, it means called out, where we get our word ecclesia, the church, the called out. People love to quote Romans 8.28. You know, Facebook you see, Romans 8.28. You see it all the time. Why don't we ever see verse 30? And I know we do sometimes. Why? People can't quite grasp this word calling. Some people don't like it due to the fact of the certain words that they don't consider their calling. If Paul had stopped with the first part of verse 28, with those who love God, then you might have a valid argument from this text. I mean, if you love God or you pick God, make a decision for Jesus, or you step out for God, choose Christ, then you might have argue that point. But Paul didn't stop with who loved God in verse 28, did he? He didn't stop. What did he say? No, a matter of fact, he continued with these words. For those who are called according to his purpose, God had a plan. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. If, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to his purpose of his will. I heard a short story online from a pastor that I like to listen to. And they were at a conference and they were talking about election and the pastor was preaching on this. And for some reason they had a guy here that disagreed with everything he said. He even told him that when he hears this, he tears this out of his Bible. I don't. I guess he was for real. He's, he said he tears it out or blots it out. And you know what the pastor that was preaching the conference when he t- talked to him? He said this. He said, I'm glad you do that, really. Kind of. I'm kind of glad you do that. I hate it for your Bible because it's going to look terrible. Because you're going to rip out a lot of stuff, right? But he said, I'm glad you did that because at least I know you know it's there. Okay? So it's like, I want to say, you know, one more thing about this passage in Romans, verse 29, about the word foreknew. A lot of times people think about election, they, and I even looked at it several years ago, I look at it like this, that God looks down the telescope or the corridor of life and sees who's going to be saved or whatever. It's not true. The object of foreknowledge in, is the people. It's not their actions. God knows each individual. The word foreknowledge here also means for, for love. One problem with that scenario in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, and I won't read it, but one of the key words there um, in Matthew is that you remember about, they're talking about not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you know, the, the Scripture there. But in verse 23 of Matthew 7, he says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The word knew here, and this is just a little extra here, the word new here in Matthew and the word foreknew in Romans is the same word. The only difference is the F O R E, the, the fore part. Jesus knew everyone, did he? Did he not? He was omniscient, right? But these words go deeper. These words go deeper as far as new and foreknew. It was an intimate knowledge, just like Adam just didn't know Eve. He knew her in an intimate way, just like Mary in Luke one thirty-four. She was asking the angel. Remember how she could be pregnant? She'd never known a man. She never knew a man. She knew Joseph, right? She knew who he was, just not in that intimate way. Same words here. So, what does all this mean here for us today? As we close, the preaching of the cross is foolish to those who have never trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. But to the, to us who've been truly been born again, in its power, it's the power there. Paul asks, where are the scribes? Where are the debaters, the wise ones? Let's face it. As I've said before, I'm going to say it again. We aren't that wise. The world cannot know God through worldly wisdom and understanding. God doesn't need human wisdom or understanding. God is pleased by the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. So I ask you this morning, have you considered your calling? We know that we're not that smart, we're not powerful, we we don't brag about where we were born, our famous birth, our noble birth as the scripture says. We have to remember that God chose what is foolish, weak, what is low, despised, that we might give God all the glory. He is our source, what our text said. We hear the general call every Sunday. Have you heard that effectual call? If not, come to Christ, repent of your sins, believe and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Is Christ calling you today for salvation? 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I saw this on a church sign, I think it was last week. God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. So I challenge everyone this morning to stop, think, and consider your calling. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just um, thank you, Lord, for your grace. I probably went a little bit long, and that's part of my inexperience. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that we as believers would consider our calling this morning. What you've done for us, Lord, the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace. We talk about the grace so much, Lord, but I don't know sometimes we really think, really know what it really means. So I do pray for lost people that could be in this building this morning as we speak. I pray that your spirit would convict, Lord. I pray that eyes would be opened, this veil would be lifted, that people might trust in Christ for their salvation, Christ alone, this morning. I thank you once again for this opportunity, and I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people that come out this morning, and I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.